this um, discourse is a discussion between two of the Buddha's enlightened disciples and the um, commentary says that they are having this discussion for the benefit of their own pupils because for themselves they wouldn't have it because they know these things anyway thus have I heard on one occasion the Blessed One was living at Savati in Jaitas Grove, Anita Pindika's Park. And when it was evening, the Venerable Mahakotita rose from meditation and went to the Venerable Sariputta and exchanged greetings with him. And when the courteous and amiable talk was finished, he sat down at one side. And when he had done so, he said to the Venerable Sariputta, Without understanding, it is said, friend, with reference to what is that said? One doesn't understand, friend, that is why without understanding it is said. What does one not understand? One does not understand this is suffering, this is the origin of suffering, this is the cessation of suffering, and this is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. the word does not understand one could also say without insight that is why it is said to be without insight the Venerable Mahakotita delighted in the Venerable Thaiputta's words and agreed with him and then he asked him a further question now when they were talking about without understanding, without wisdom it is um, the standard answer that that is not recognizing the four noble truths and the four noble truths are so to say the spokes or even the hub the hub of the wheel of the whole of the Dhamma it's the um, inner core everything depends on the Four Noble Truths and the Four Noble Truths were that what the Buddha proclaimed under the Bodhi tree at his enlightenment now he proclaimed it to himself at the time but then later on when he gave his first discourse the Dhamma Chakra Pravadana Sutta he said that that is what he saw at his enlightenment Dhamma Chakra means the wheel of the Dhamma Pavadana, the turning off the turning of the wheel of the Dhamma which he started with that discourse of the Four Noble Truths and the wheel of the Dhamma is still turning for our benefit and it is turning now so that we can have the benefit for which we can be very grateful it will stop turning one day it will not be available anymore even now it's not that easy to find now these four noble truths first noble truths there is dukkha 
second one the origin of dukkha which is craving third one cessation of dukkha which is nibbana and fourth one the noble eightfold path now the first two are immediately recognizable and provable by any one of us dukkha is not just pain, grief and lamentation it is everything that's unsatisfactory and the reason it's unsatisfactory to us not satisfying is because we want it otherwise that's our craving, our desire we don't want it the way it is if we were to just accept it the way it is there would be no dukkha at all but we have all these ideas how things ought to be where we get them from is very simply said they are all supposed to create pleasant feelings for us an absolute absurdity but that's how mankind lives nobody has a guarantee that only pleasant feelings are going to arise in fact everybody could have a guarantee that they don't that they always interspersed with unpleasant but <clears throat> because we don't want that we only want pleasant feelings there are many things which we don't want the way they are and through that through that craving of wanting them otherwise we have dukkha now some of the things that we don't have we want to get and some things that we do have we want to get rid of and that's the second noble truth and one day one might see that and stop doing it and what a relief that is the noble eightfold path is the path leading to the cessation of suffering and um, we have already discussed it no it doesn't come in this sutta but we have already discussed the noble eightfold path and it is divided into the three parts of the whole of the teaching sila samadhi and panya moral conduct concentration and wisdom insight and all three parts have to be practiced because one alone will never be able to stand on its own feet they all need the support of the other two so if we practice only one only trying to get concentrated so that we have pleasant sensations which are then of course also impermanent and never keep what they promise and don't practice for insight we haven't got a hope of escaping dukkha not a single hope the only way to escape dukkha is through insight but the calm, the concentration which produces calm and tranquility is a necessary means because a mind which doesn't have the ability to stand still long enough to get into the absorption will not have the ability to see reality it's got to be able to stand still 
But if we use calm and concentration as an escape from our dukkha, we'll be constantly disappointed. There is no escape. The only escape is complete insight into it. And by seeing it and understanding and having the insight, giving up the craving, giving up that what produces the dukkha. And then, of course, we're rid of it. Simple, isn't it? Needs to be done, though. And without insight means that we don't see those four noble truths. Now the next question is seems to be a repetition, but in the Buddhist dispensation it has always been the custom to explain everything in detail. To give detailed explanations so that deluded mankind eventually knows what's going on. The Buddha said that only those with little dust in their eyes are able to understand what he's teaching and of those there are only few. But being the kind of teacher that he was and his enlightened disciples doing likewise try to make it accessible to as many people as possible. And because of that, give very repetitive and analytical explanations in the hope that people would eventually grasp. Now, mind you, most people don't. Most people catch like the corner of the blanket and think that they've got the whole blanket. The Buddha gave a wonderful simile for that. It's a story of the blind man and the elephant. He said, if there are some blind men who want to find out what an elephant looks like, then one lot might grab hold of the tail and they would touch the tail and then they would say, the elephant looks like a paintbrush and another lot would grab hold of the trunk and they would say, oh, the elephant's like a snake and another lot might get hold of the tusk And they would say, oh, the elephant's like a trumpet. And another lot might touch the side of the elephant and would say, oh, it's like a wrinkled cat skin. And another lot might get a hold of the foot of the elephant and would say, it's like a huge toadstool. And each one would be correct, but nobody would know what an elephant looks like. And that's what people do with the teaching. They grab hold of one little piece of it and say, well, that's the teaching. And another one grabs hold of another corner and says, well, that's the teaching. So we have those that say, well, it's a Vinaya, it's the rules, that's the teaching. And another Lord says, oh, no, it's not that. It's uh, 
you have to get pleasant feelings to calm, that's the teaching. And others say, no, no, none of that. All you have to do is get, get insight, see impermanence, and that's the teaching. It's all of it. It's like that elephant. Nice elephant story. The next question, which uh, Mahakotita asked Sai Buddha is, possessed of understanding, is it is said, with reference to what is that said? One understands, friend, that is why possessed of understanding it is said. And what does one understand? This is the origin of suffering, this is cessation of suffering, this is a way leading to the cessation of suffering. And that's why it is said, possessed of understanding, possessed of insight. This translator uses the word understanding, other translators say insight. So others, others say wisdom, wisdom insight, some of them. Okay, so they've got that sorted out. Now, they've got another question. Consciousness, it is said, with reference to what is consciousness said, Cognizing friend, that is why consciousness is said. Cognizing what? This is pleasant, this is painful, this is neither painful nor pleasant. That's why consciousness is said. This understanding and this consciousness friend are these dhammas called conjoined, co-joined, co-joined, conjoined, or disjoined. And is it possible to separate each from each other, from each, each from each, in order to describe the difference between them? So understanding is the insight into the Four Noble Truths. And the consciousness has been explained as the understanding, cognizing of the feeling. Which is a new way of explaining it because usually Consciousness is explained as sense consciousness. And one wonders also why, whether this is correct, because the feeling is explained in the same way. One has to remember not only that it's two and a half thousand years old and some stuff got lost on the way, but also that we have many dis- discrepancies between translations and between um, the um, actually the transcripts. So the cogn- the consciousness cognition <coughs> is explained as a feeling, and then comes the feeling, which is explained exactly in the same way. And I'm wondering whether that's not a mistake. I would I would have thought that the consciousness should be explained as the sense consciousness, which it usually is. Because we are getting to the five khandhas. But anyway, we'll keep it like that. Now he wants to know whether the understanding and the consciousness are co-joined or disjoined. And and also one can know the the difference between them. This understanding and this consciousness, friend, these dhammas are co-joined, not disjoined, and it is impossible to separate each from each in order to describe the difference between them. For what one understands, that one cognizes, 
and what one cognizes that one understands so he's not referring actually to the former thing that he's talking about the inside one about the four noble truths he's, he's replying with <coughs> that what we understand we can recognize and what we recognize we also understand that is why these ideas are co-joined not disjoined and why it is impossible to separate each from each in order to describe the difference between them the word consciousness here the cognition if it is not to be taken apart from understanding should actually be more than just the three different kinds of feelings it should be everything that one cognizes this understanding and this consciousness friends that are co-joint not disjoint what is the difference between them the difference between them is this namely understanding can be developed while consciousness can be fully known well here we get back to insight which makes more sense understanding meaning insight is something that we develop we train ourselves in insight whereas as we have consciousness all we have to know all we have to do is cognize it recognize it so I'm going to get back to the to my understanding of this I'm sometimes hesitant because these people that have been translating should be knowing more than I do but uh, I don't think this is correct um, I'm getting back to this uh, my understanding that this is sense consciousness the sense consciousness which arises out of the eye, ear, taste, touch, smell, contact and then the consciousness arises remember we had already this that the eye this eye base is in order there's an eye object when the two meet you have eye consciousness which is seen and this is what what I'm understanding this to be so then it makes a lot of sense because consciousness the eye consciousness the ear consciousness that can be fully known unless one's half asleep if one's half asleep nothing is known if one doesn't pay attention it's also not known but if we are awake aware aware and alert our sense consciousnesses are known but our insight into them well that we have to develop that we haven't got from the word go maybe you can appreciate the difficulties of the um, um, canon and it's um, what this is the original Tali canon but the difficulties in trying to find one's way in it because first of all we're not using original language and if we were if we were to use Pali it's a dead language it's not, not being spoken it never has been spoken other than by the Buddha and then never again so um, it's not easy to find one's way in it it's only possible actually to recognize what's being said for a practitioner for someone to just read this uh, uh, read these it's very often um, rather tedious 
usually only possible for those either that are practitioners and extremely imbued with faith or both. If one has complete faith and is a practitioner, then one can uh, read it well. Otherwise, it's very tedious. So the the discussion is about whether cognition uh, of sense consciousness and insight are the same or whether they're different. Well, they are different in so far that one means one knows it, the other one, one just has to be aware of it, and the other one that one has to develop it. And when they're talking about the fact that they are co-joined, it means that our sense consciousness, which arises, has an immediate awareness with it. Unless, as I said, we're half asleep. If we are at now looking, it's impossible not to see because we're wide awake and aware and alert. So we have this there together, but our insight into what we see may not arise. Now we have to be able to develop an understanding of how we operate compulsively. I mean, there's no way out of operating like that if we want to get out of Dukkha. There's no other way to get out of Dukkha if we don't recognize how we operate. Now, the next thing is feeling. With reference to what is that said? One feels, that's why feeling is said. Feels what? Pain and pleasure and neither pain nor pleasure. So this is correct. Our feelings are those. And this is the what we have already had with our five aggregates, one the body, the other the four the mental aggregates, that first comes the sense consciousness and then immediately comes the feeling. There's no way out of that. Except if we really practice just hearing. Perception. Perception is said, friends, with reference to what? Perceives, that's why perception is said. Perceives blue, perceives yellow, perceives red, perceives white. Perceives, that's why perception is said. This feeling and this perception and this consciousness, friend, are these dhammas co-joined or disjoined? Is it possible to separate each from each in order to describe the difference between them? Now this is exactly as it is in our five aggregates. First, sense consciousness, which is like the touch sensation when we sit. Then from that sense consciousness, which is the touch sensation as an example, comes the feeling which can become unpleasant, and then comes the perception which says painful. It doesn't say blue, red, white, or green, it just says painful. But if we see for instance, a color disc, we may be seeing the color. The feeling and perception in consciousness, friends, these dhammas are co-joined, not disjoined. And it's impossible to separate each from each in order to describe the difference between them. For what one feels, one cognizes. This is why these dhammas are co-joined and not disjoined and why it's impossible to separate each from each in order to describe the difference between them. Well, 
actually we can describe the difference between them by their results one we have a feeling and another one we have a perception of that what is happening and the first one we have a contact we can <coughs> describe the result which is different but we can't describe what's happening it's impossible impossible to describe what's happening besides it's so quick we can hardly catch it now when we are meditating meditating we are sometimes able to catch it especially if we've trained ourselves we can catch it but we can't say what blip has gone on in the mind in order to this, do this or that but we can say what the result of it is the first one is, uh, is uh, the contact which we can in, especially in touch we can be knowing that there's a touch contact and we can know that there's an unpleasant feeling and we can know that the mind says pain but there's no way we can say why is the mind doing those three different things it can only say that it's doing it as a cause and effect the cause is the sense consciousness and the effect is that but there's no special blips that light up and say well all right now the green one has lit up and that's the perception now the red one's lit up and that's the feeling is impossible there's no such thing can't be said now knowable by mind alone is the next question now friend what can be known by pure mind consciousness disjoint from the five faculties friend by pure mind consciousness disjoint from the five faculties the base consisting of space can be known thus infinite space the base consisting of infinite consciousness can be known thus infinite consciousness and the base consisting of nothingness can be known thus there is nothing at all so what is um, being said here the five faculties are the five sense faculties the five senses and the three things that can be known by pure mind consciousness are the three higher jhanas which we have already discussed namely infinite space infinite consciousness and the base of nothingness and here as usual that's all that's being said about them there's a very I don't think there's anywhere any more being said about them except this infinite space infinite consciousness and then nothingness it's strange that nothing more is being said because we ourselves are able to say more and I've often wondered why and my idea is that it's either got lost which is quite possible a lot has been lost which is natural um, even between the time of the Buddha's discourses and the time that they were written down a lot must have been lost it's not possible any other way or alternatively it can also be that people did these things so naturally that there was no need to explain infinite space infinite consciousness and the base of nothingness that's another possibility I tend to think 
that lot of stuff got lost. But the other possibility is also possible, and then it's possible that both things are true. I can't imagine that if people needed the instructions, the Buddha wouldn't have given them, because he goes into such detail on everything else, on everything, including what to eat, when to eat, how to eat, where to eat, how to go to the toilet, where to go to the toilet, when to go to the toilet, that one can't imagine that he wouldn't run, gone into any detail on this one, on the three um, arupajanas, the three non-material meditative absorptions, which are also called the vipassana jhanas, the insight jhanas. These three bring enormous insight. If they're done properly, awake and aware, one has a recognition of the fact that there is nobody there. Because it's pure mind consciousness. The purity of the mind consciousness eliminates the personal consciousness. Purity is always without me. If there's me in it, it's no longer pure. The same with love. Love is totally impure and is ex experienced as such when there is the wish for reciprocal love, when there is the attachment of having and owning, when there is somebody in particular loving. There's always impurity and it's very unpleasant usually because the results are unpleasant. And purity only arises when there is no me in the whole thing. And so this pure mind consciousness, which makes it possible to experience those three, is the one which is disassociated from the ego illusion. And now the next question is, is what, with what does one understand a noble Dhamma? <laughs> a noble Dhamma, friend, one understands with the eye of understanding. <laughs> not very <laughs> satisfactory, is it? Um, a noble Dhamma is anything. Dhamma is anything that exists. So, it's something that is knowable. And the eye of understanding is inside. So, what does one understand? With what does one understand a noble Dhamma, a noble phenomena? With the eye of insight. And what does understanding have for its purpose? Understanding has direct knowledge for its purpose. It has full knowledge for its purpose and it has abandoning for its purpose. Direct knowledge means in the trans what is being translated is Yata Bhutanyana Dasana. Sometimes it's quite clear what's being translated but other times I can't guess. Um, knowledge and vision of things as they really are. That's direct knowledge. Direct knowledge means that one sees absolute reality behind relative reality. Now, absolute reality looks totally different from this relative reality. The relative reality in which we live is um, 
a dream from which we can eventually wake up. And that's why the Buddha is called the awakened one. He woke up. Um, we can compare it to many things. We can compare it to a puppet theater, to a show. We can compare it to... Um, to being in a like in a in a fog and considering that to be reality there's an excellent um, explanation of what we how we live in Plato's Republic um, Plato is sometimes called the father of Christian mysticism whether that's so or not I wouldn't I wouldn't have any uh, opinion on that. I don't know Plato well enough for that, or maybe even Christian mysticism. But his Republic has a very interesting passage in it uh, of people sitting in a cave and with their and chained to the ground and with their eyes to the back of the cave, and a fire is lit behind them and on their back and everything that exists or that happens in the outside world is seen by them as shadows thrown by that fire onto the back wall of the cave which they are looking at and one day one of them is able to loosen the chain a little and look turn his uh, body a little and look outside and see all these people walking by and although they are what could be said to be real people, he doesn't think they are because he's used to seeing only the shadows. So he can't even accept the reality. And that's the way we live. We think the shadowy world in which we live is real because we haven't had a chance to get free of the fetters so that we could turn around 180 degrees and see a completely different picture. Direct knowledge means having done that, having seen things as they are, at least to the point where we recognize the fact that we're only seeing shadows. The dukkha which we experience in this world should give us an inkling. But what people usually do with dukkha, either they try to escape it through some manner or form which they figure out, have figured out for themselves. I mean, some people try to escape through alcoholism, through drugs, through travel, uh, through, um, I know, people who read novel after novel. Uh, some people escape through pleasant thinking, um, distractions, anything. Um, sailing around the world climbing the highest mountains anything at all some things are easier some are more difficult um, and that's a common way and um, but using this to see that this can't be all there is to it is not uncommon and it gives rise to this strong desire to have things differently. So what most people do is they try to change 
what they consider is producing dukkha instead of recognizing the fact that we're looking at it wrongly we're seeing it all like shadows the complete misunderstanding that if we would understand it properly there wouldn't be any very few people get to that point that's why the Buddha said there are only a few people with little dust in their eyes but it's worthwhile teaching for their benefit when he first became enlightened he didn't want to teach he thought people would misunderstand this profound teaching and that would be for his vexation so even an enlightened one can become vexed but um, then uh, the story says that the highest um, uh, Brahman the highest uh, of the God realms came to beg him to teach for the benefits of God and men and uh, then he reconsidered and saw that there were with his um, clairvoyance he could see that there were some people with little dust in their eyes and he would teach for their benefit so and even though the Buddha himself was around his teaching uh, did not reach any further than about two or three three provinces in northern India that's all there was just three provinces in northern India and even in the time of the Buddha there were people right next to him who never listened and when they did listen didn't believe a word he said so there are few people with little dust in their eyes but seeing direct knowledge uh, insight has for its purpose direct knowledge seeing things as they really are and seeing things as they really are seeing oneself as one really is that's all it, that is what it's all about seeing oneself seeing oneself as one really is one of the very important things to see is this constant desire wanting, wanting, wanting and this wanting is pulling, getting, half wanting, having, looking all the time trying to get whatever it is just something to get out of Dukkha wanting, wanting, wanting and with this wanting having more and more Dukkha when we see that naturally we're going to stop one day but most people never get to see it it has full knowledge for its purpose full knowledge means complete insight huh? and abandoning abandoning what? the ego illusion of course that's the purpose of the whole thing abandoning the ego illusion now inside abandons the ego illusion and the jhanas are indispensable aids on the way and the inside jhanas those five, six, seven which are mentioned here and they are mentioned for a purpose I mean this is not accidental these three actually make it easy to see the real thing comparatively easy I should say so it's not accidental that these three are mentioned now mind you stream entry the first step towards Nibbana can be done without those three I have never yet 
met up with anybody, but then I haven't met that many people, who has done it without the fourth jhana, but certainly without five, six, seven. But five, six, seven do facilitate the matter. And five, six, seven, while they are what is commonly called mind-blowing, um, give rise in an intelligent mind to a definite change of attitude. So that's what the whole thing's all about. Insight has a purpose. It has a purpose to see directly, to have full knowledge, to have full understanding, and to abandon the ego illusion. Next thing is right view. Friends, how many condition, conditions are there for the arising of right view? There are two conditions for the arising of right view. View, sorry. <laughs> Another's voice and wise attention. I think what's, cons- what's um, being translated is Yonisomaniskara, which is a very common expression in the Pali Suttas, Yonisomaniskara, means wise consideration. So another's voice means hearing, because in the Buddhist day, um, religious teaching were not written down. It was considered not the right thing to do. They were always transmitted uh, orally. So it had to be another's voice and then wise consideration. These are the two conditions for the arising of right view. Now friend, how many factors is right view assisted by when it has deliverance of the heart for its fruit, deliverance of the heart for its benefit, Deliverance by understanding for its fruit, deliverance by understanding for its benefit. And this um, discourse gets to the <laughs> end of the path in, in three pages. It's a <laughs> bit quick. Um, the deliverance of heart and the deliverance by understanding are the two ways of liberation, the two ways of reaching Nirvana. The one is Chitta Vimutti and the other is Panya Vimutti. Now Chitta Vimutti, the word Chitta means mind and Vimutti means liberation and Panya means wisdom and again Vimutti means liberation. So one is liberation by mind, liberation by wisdom but that doesn't seem to make any sense. So the translation in English is liberation by heart and the word Chitta does not just mean our mental processes. It also means our emotional states. Chitta has the meaning of both. So in many translations we find Chitta always translated as heart. So it's deliverance, uh, it's um, liberation, mm, deliverance, the liberation by heart, liberation by insight, by wisdom. They both come together, I've already explained this, but I'll say it again. They both come together at the apex of liberation. Heart and mind have to be liberated. We have to have complete emotional liberation and complete liberation of understanding of our mental processes. They have to work totally differently 
when we are liberated. That doesn't mean that we don't think. An arahant thinks. It doesn't mean that we don't feel. An arahant feels. It doesn't mean that an, there are no emotions. It doesn't mean that there are no thought processes. But all of them are, first of all, skillful and wholesome. And all of them just are without the addition of <coughs> the feeling that they are being produced by me. Now if you can just check for a moment how you feel about your thinking and your feelings, you will know that you have the idea that you are thinking and you are feeling. In fact, you've probably n never given it any thought that it could be otherwise. And that's the difference between an arahant and an, and an worldling. And that's why worldlings have so much trouble. Because they take the whole thing as if it was theirs. And then, of course, because this mind is an illusion and isn't being supported by fact, we look for support from other people and other people have no interest in supporting our ego illusion they are looking for their support system for their ego illusion and because they are looking for their support system and we are looking for ours we are constantly up against the, the, um, the difficulty of not getting what we are looking for and so we are constantly in trouble if we stop looking for the uh, support system it, will, it would entail that we no longer so we have these two ways of liberation and the, the traditional way of explaining that is that the liberation through the heart goes through the jhanas through the purification of the emotions through loving kindness and compassion and the liberation of the, uh, through wisdom goes through insight and culminates then in the jhanas and has that as a result also and has the emotional purification as a result whereas the first one has then the insight as a result so there are two different approaches resulting in the same thing it's certainly much easier to go through the jhana approach and the liberation of the heart because that does not create fear and does not create um, resistance whereas if, it, if one goes through insight and then comes to the um, jhanas and then comes to the uh, um, emotional purification the inside path as such without the support system of the jhanas can create a great deal of fear and resistance because the inside is 180 degrees different from what we think things are both ways are equally good there's no uh, value system involved both come to the same result now right view is assisted 
Right view is assisted by five factors when it has the deliverance of the heart for its fruit, the deliverance of the heart for its benefit, the deliverance by understanding for its fruit, the deliverance by understanding for its benefit. Right view is assisted by virtue, by learning, by converse, by peace, and by insight. Right view is assisted by these five factors. Sorry, right view assisted by these five factors has the deliverance of the heart for its fruit, for its benefit, the deliverance by understanding for its fruit, for its benefit. Virtue is moral conduct. And moral conduct are the five precepts. But there's more to that um, than just the five precepts. There are ten virtues. And I think maybe tomorrow evening I'll talk about those um, ten virtues which are an essential part of the way to liberation. You see, again, like the elephant story, one can't just pick out what one wants one little bit. I'd like to get a bit of peace and quiet in the mind. It just doesn't happen that way because peace and quiet in the mind, while it is obtainable in the meditation, it just doesn't last. And all the things that happen in the world are again being, going to be just as unpleasant and just have as much impact as they had before unless the whole of the teaching is taken as a complete spiritual path. You see, spirituality as opposed to materiality. Materiality is the world system. Spirituality is the heart system. And the world system is being taught everywhere. The heart system is hardly ever even mentioned. Most people don't even know that it exists. If they get an inkling, it's the same like with this elephant, they get an inkling and they think that the elephant is a paintbrush. Have you ever seen an elephant's tail? Looks like a paintbrush. So that there are virtues, there are ten virtues. I'll, just, I'll t- tell you about them tomorrow. Um, virtue, l- learning. That's also one of the virtues. Converse. That's um, the discussion. To um, the Buddha was very much uh, in favor that those who really wanted to know, who really wanted to get rid of their dukkha, they should ask. They should. And many of these discourses are uh, answers to questions. This one here is actually a discussion between two eminent arahants. There are, one is asking the other. Now Sariputta was a right-hand disciple of the Buddha and um, said to be, by the Buddha, to be the one with the greatest wisdom, the analytical um, expert, the expert at analysis. And so this other one, who is also Arahant, but quite unknown, I've never heard his name anywhere else, um, asks him questions because he wants to have an analysis. So this is a discussion. And I would say that this discussion is probably not just for the benefit of the pupils, as the commentary says. I don't always agree with commentaries, with the commentaries. 
uh, but it is for the benefit of the, the questioner because he may have become quite uh, purified and enlightened but then analytical wisdom is not is not uh, is lacking so he's trying to uh, obtain that through Sariputta so converse conver- conversation discussion um, having the ability uh, the opportunities to ask questions having the uh, opportunity to um, also voice one's um, difficulties and then the next two are calm and insight samatha and vipassana peace and insight now these are just arbitrary translations calm and insight they always have to be part of every liberation there's no other way calm and insight are the two directions of meditation there is nothing else there are many many methods you can use a green button with red dots on it if you can get concentrated on it it doesn't really matter but it's calm and insight that's all there is there is nothing other than that people get all enthused about their in apostrophes method about their teachers ideas on how to do it it's, it's just method method is method by any name it's not meditation Meditation is calm and insight. That's all there is. And so it's called peace and insight here, but that's the same thing. And um, if we look at, well, the virtues I'll talk about tomorrow, but if we look at the other two, learning and converse, which learning is to know what the Buddha said, and then converse to ask about it. But the, the knowing, the learning, presupposes the remembering. Most people can't remember anything. But many of this, well, not many, but let's say some, some of the students who do learn these things, they eventually can remember. It's a matter of hearing it over and over again. One can't remember with just one hearing. There are very few people who have that ability. There are some, but very, very few. But everybody has the ability to remember when hearing it over and over again. And eventually it all falls into place. All these different aspects which make up the teaching seem to be different bits and pieces but then having heard them over and over and practiced them they fall into place as one giant picture making up the whole of the spiritual path from beginning to end and that does happen I have seen it happen with 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 my students in the beginning it all seems to be so much how can anybody remember all this but it does happen and then they, one can actually write down in telegram style the whole pathway so it's the learning and the asking the questions it doesn't mean that one has to know all of this by heart although I have heard that well maybe they did now but not so long ago 
there were still three monks in Burma who were able to recite the whole Pali Canon from beginning to end in Pali. Seventeen and a half thousand discourses. Amazing feat, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they understood the whole thing. It was just that they could recite them. But that was some time ago. They might be dead now also. But as one reads this over and over again and hears it, one knows the most important facets and aspects of it, which always seem to fit together again. Now, as you, as you heard, there was this business here about consciousness with the pleasant, unpleasant, and painful feel, pleasant and unpleasant and neutral feelings. Well, obviously that can't be right because we've heard consciousness so many times now. So one finds it for oneself that the learning eventually results in understanding. And uh, so these are necessary. Right view has to have the assistance of virtue, learning, converse, questioning, calm and insight. Without that, it will not lead to deliverance. It's very interesting that he should ask so many things. <laughs> it's, the, it's a very um, a profound, it, it explains also later on, to how the deliverance of mind comes about. So, converse, questions. You have to have that as an assistance to your right view. It doesn't have to be related. I think what I'm trying to understand is the relationship between purifying oneself and insight. And so th- these are the these are the two questions, two different ones that I that have been in my mind for actually quite a long time. Um, this is one with relation to the jhanas. Um, as a person, you say that people can um, you know, experience deliverance or blessings after the fourth journey normally the way. Mm. And once somebody does experience that, would it then not be quite simple for them to experience the higher journey as well? Would that normally mm, well it's not it's not that simple but mm-hmm. uh, they eventually will everybody eventually will if they keep on practicing. But doesn't that wouldn't that assist in the fact that that, that right view, that deeper understanding that Yeah, probably make it easier, it? yes. But the two have the it's two things have actually are not connected. The past moment needs the jhanic ability because you can't get a past moment without being totally concentrated. So the fourth jhana has enough concentration in it. It's actually easier to have a past moment if you've done five, six, and seven, but you can do that before, 
And after having had a past moment, if you practice nicely, there's no reason why you shouldn't do five, six, and seven. So it's You have to have enough insight to be to be wanting to give yourself up completely, utterly, without any residue. No, that's very momentary. You know, you you know very well you're going to come out again. It's uh, it's a totally different commitment. It's a uh, it's a it's a total commitment. Past moment, the jhanas aren't. Jhanas are usually only, um, well, I mean, they also promise you something. But giving yourself up completely doesn't promise a thing, does it? I mean, it might promise you relief from dukkha, but who's getting the relief if you've got yourself given up completely? That's right. <laughs> exactly. That's why it's so difficult. <laughs> but the jhanas promise something, don't they? They promise some nice moments. <laughs> so it's not that difficult. Hmm? Jhanas are much easier than past moments. The only question that I had was um, we have these different, the different stages of enlightenment, um, stream and then um, and we Petas disappear. Yeah. Um, is it like this that, okay, presumably, say, after you've become a stream enter and, you know, you develop this self confidence and you have this, um, you never, you know, it's, it's like this. You forget that then you can um, reawaken that this memory or the grief feeling that you have. But you still have grief. <laughs> Both. <laughs> Both. <laughs> you can only have a second experience if you have continued with your purification. But you will have the loss of the fetus only after the second experience. Well, not loss. The diminishing of the fetus, sorry. Uh, only after the second experience. In other words, it's catch-22, as usual. You've got to do it in order to get it. First, you have to purify in order to get there. Once you've got there, then the purification is to that certain extent complete. Actually, the two first past moments, once uh, mantra and once returner, are really the kindergarten of enlightenment because you're still saddled with hate, greed, and hate. No. Yeah, once you've Yeah, much less. Hate is irritation, and greed is. Um, Mm, what's the word? 
it's there, but it can be dismissed. It's never overwhelming. You have it, but it's, you can dismiss it. Is that clear what I'm saying? Okay. And hate is not hate, it's irritation. Annoyance. It's not hate. Yeah, yeah, you're not stuck on either one of those. So it's annoyance and it's, it's, uh, it's uh, you can dismiss the greed. Um, without great, uh, you know, suffering or anything like that. But the, uh, most of them is only in the non-return. And that makes an enormous difference. That really makes a difference. The, uh, the, well, I mean, the first two or three makes a difference. Be quite alright if everybody was a experimenter, I'm sure. <laughs> yes, well, you have to do both. You have to keep on purifying and then you get rid of the fetters. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. It uh, changes you. There, there, this is, there are only one mind moment, but they have such an enormous impact that they change, make an absolute change. And they clear the mind. They give the mind more clarity. You can see everything much clearer. Very interesting. Yes. A past moment means having one of the uh, well, the stream enters the first past moment. The second one is once returner, third one is non-returner, and fourth one is arahant. And that that's what it means. The past moment is that what it's, it's one mind moment only. And it changes one uh, quite drastically, and uh, but it's not something one can describe because the past moment doesn't have an observer. But there's a fruit moment after it, which is two mind moments usually. I mean, who would know what one mind moment is anyway? It's very brief, and the fruit moment's also very brief. But that is then followed by reviewing. The fruit moment is followed by reviewing, and the reviewing is an understanding of what has happened. And then comes the another reviewing, which is what have I, what has changed in me, and what is still the same. And that's quite. Um, quite impressive what what happens there. And it's completely uh, predictable. I mean, there's no doubt what happens. It's, uh, well, the verbiage may be different, but it always explains the same thing. And having heard it often enough, one is exactly right. I mean, that's uh, utterly predictable, just like the jhanas are utterly predictable. Otherwise, it wouldn't be science of mind. pity that we don't have a university for that. We should have a Jana university. <laughs> Shouldn't we? That's what you have, I thought. <laughs> Sorry? I thought that's what we had. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's, it's not very well attended, is it? <laughs> very, it's, it's, um, 
uh, you know, the um, science of mind is uh, something that has not really never been taught in that way. It's always been mixed up with religion and uh, ritual. It still is. And then the religion, whatever that is, and ritual and uh, rites and um, tradition take pride of place instead of that which really would make us religious. Interesting, isn't it? I just thought of it. Do you think that maybe the people who recorded the Buddha's speeches, you know, the transcripts who finally wrote them down, that the might be deliberately have left out this um, Well, that's the thought, you know. Why should they have been better than the Catholics? The Catholics well, did all the that. Did they? Obviously, in the uh, in the Christian religion, uh, a lot of things were left out because one shouldn't make the populace so knowledgeable, and then the church has less uh, dominion over them. So that's a possibility. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of that which has been put in there. There's no doubt about. Buddha would never have said certain things. Yes, it's a possibility, who knows? But, uh, yes, signs of mind that should be taught. Well, signs of the heart sounds even better. Signs of the heart. Well, it's not going to happen now, too, I don't think. You should never say never. University wouldn't allow it. No, it, it, just, it can't be done because it, it, it's something much like you said before, there's something because you cannot objectify the uh, body because yes. experience. Yes, in yes I understand exactly. That's true in Christianity, but not in Buddhism. In Christianity, it's uh, you can't objectify. Every one of the mystics. I'm just reading a book, and that it has, the, you know, the one I read out of, um, and it has excerpts from at least maybe 20 different Christian mystics, and I mean, you wouldn't know you're reading the same thing. It is so difficult to even find your way through all the verbiage. In Christianity, that would hold true, not in Buddhism. The jhanas are the jhanas are the jhanas. There's nothing else to be done. And they're always the same thing, over and over again. So it can be objectified and repeated. And um, and probably, if in Christianity it had been 
or would ever be um, taught properly, they could do it too. They could also have it repeatable and available to everybody, but they've never done that. It's always been a personal experience. Mm-hmm. Doesn't really But that God, but, but that's just a word. Right, but I mean, that was kind of hard for Teresa to incorporate that concept of God to her experience. Yeah, well, she made a nice job of it. She had some, you know. <laughs> no, yes, it's interesting, yes, that they wouldn't go for that. No, one has to make a, a new university. It wouldn't happen at ANU, I'm sure. Yes. Uh, in, in Europe, one has more chances. Yeah, Much more chances. It's very interesting. There is a um, place, it's called MB Energy University, but it's a sort of an offshoot of the former Rajneesh uh, teaching. And then there is a university in America, in Boulder, Colorado, which was actually founded by um, Chogyam Tungpa, and uh, they have they recognized the credits are recognized at university level, and they're teaching not mysticism, of course not, but they're teaching Buddhism in all its aspects. I mean other things too, but Buddhism, and they're teaching psychoanalysis and uh, psychotherapy, all with reference to Buddhism. And they're recognized as a university. And it's a quite a large establishment. I haven't seen it, but I've seen the uh, um, catalog. It's very interesting. It was founded by Chogyam Tungpa. So it isn't that far out, but a bit far out for Australia, I suppose. <laughs> it's a... Uh, in America, there is something like that already. And the other one is in Switzerland. Uh, sorry, no, in Italy. In Italy. Um, but they've been thrown out, so they have to go to France now. <laughs> so there are things like that in New York. I don't know that they... I'm sh- I do know that they don't teach the jhanas. I do know that. So, anything else? Well, if one has been listening long enough and taught well enough, one wouldn't go without it. <coughs> A mind which is inclined towards inside, an intelligent mind that is inclined towards inside, would do it automatically. I mean, the mind would say, oh, what happened? What is what is this? What what do I feel now? But if one hasn't had much teaching, one has the experience without understanding it. One may actually not do it, and then it won't do so much good. It will still be the experience, but it won't be 
you see, because you haven't understood it, you haven't got the confidence of having experienced it. You know you have experienced something, that's definite, but you not knowing exactly what it is, it's not so fruitful. But anyone who has learned something about the teaching will automatically review because uh, it's one wants to know what was it. Mm. The fruit moment is said to be two mind moments, also very brief, but the understanding of it, that takes sometimes quite a while. You might need a day or two to actually incorporate it into one. Sometimes an hour, sometimes an hour. It depends how quick the mind is. Mm-hmm. Past moment determines the next fruit moment. What determines the next past moment? How do you how do you get the next past moment? Well, you keep on practicing. Practicing means the meditation has to continue, and the. Um, experience of the fruit moment, the feeling of that has to be resurrected over and over and over until it becomes part of one's makeup, that that feeling is like second nature to one. And then the mind is ready. Now, um, it's also a very strong determination very strong determination to finally let go of the self-identification and illusion because all of that is dukkha. So that determination has to become stronger and stronger and the resurrection of that feeling that arose in the fruit moment and was unrecognized has to become very much imbued in oneself so that the mind can't do anything else except hope for the second one. <coughs> the most difficult one is from three to four, as usual. Same as this from three to four is difficult. From three to four, from the third past moment to the fourth is the most difficult. The first three past moments only eliminate five factors and there are ten altogether. So after the third pass moment, one still has half the second. Nice situation, no? That's the way it is. One should be lucky to even know about these things. One is very uh, lucky to even have an inkling of what can be done. And this is what the Buddha said, there's only few people with little dust in their eyes that hear it and know it. You know, this is so interesting. People hear this, maybe, you know, first time, and they realize immediately that's right. And others can hear it and hear it and hear it. And then again and again they say, yes, but. And then another one, yes, but. Year after year after year. Very interesting. And some people hear this for the first time and they say, yeah, sure. But not that they can do it right away, I don't mean that. 
but there's a total agreement inside that that's the way it is. My teacher always said that that's due to the fact that we've done this many times before, that we have this immediate agreement. It doesn't assume, it doesn't mean that they have to, that it works. <laughs> what was that mean? <laughs> Mm. But you mean to say you're still not quite enlightened? No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's all right. <laughs> I wouldn't worry about it. <laughs> well, I saw the temple school. What does the eighth one do for you? Um. It is, um, it is an enormous uh, energy producer for the mind because the mind has complete, um, as much stillness as it can possibly get uh, outside of the past moment. The past moment is only one second anyway, one mind moment. Uh, because it doesn't perceive anything. The perception is also gone. So it has, uh, it's very, very very um, restful and therefore very energy producing and also it does uh, acclimatize the mind to a state of being where nothing needs to be known you see in the five six seven you do know something and but in in the eight you don't know anything I mean, you're all there, but you don't know anything. So it does uh, get the mind prepared. But the main thing is that it's the energy producer. And so the mind can really use its faculties to the best advantage. So, in a thought, like you do, No. Not at all. Uh, they don't occur while in the jhana at all. They they can occur after the jhana, and uh, that is the time to um, um, direct the mind in that direction after the jhana. But they can occur at any time. You can walking around anything. Anything. There's a very nice story about uh, in the Terigatas. The Terigatas are the verses. Gatas are verses and Teris are the enlightened uh, elder nuns. Tera the elder monks, Teri the elder nuns. And uh, the verses, there's about 67 or 68 verses in that book, the Terigatas of 68, let's say 67, 68. enlightened nuns who proclaimed their enlightenment with a verse and um, one of them uh, proclaimed it like this that she had had her meal her lunch her lunch in her arms bowl and then she was finished and then she washed out the arms bowl and then she poured out the soapy water into the sand and as this soapy water 
trickled away into the sand. She became so imbued with impermanence that she was enlightened. There was nothing left, nothing left of her um, solidity and her continuity. Now, naturally, that was due to the fact that she had been practicing, 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 but it happened at a very mundane moment. It wasn't anything to do with jhana or anything at all. And that's often mentioned like that, but whatever. Any time is a welcome time for a past moment. The jhanas are the preparation and they are the uh, the assist I mean the, we don't I don't think we've had many discourses without them they're always there they're part of like uh, well they're sila samadhi and panya virtue concentration and insight it's the middle middle aspect of three so not in the jhanas but after the Immediately following is possible, yes. When the mind has been directed properly, sometimes it directs itself. So there's more explanation in the Sutta about that forthcoming still. Sorry? It's unintentional direction of the mind, in the sense that, you know, she, she's not directing the mind towards Nibbana, so to speak. No. Uh, now, that is more like a bit of chant, so to speak. Uh, no, not like that. She is directing her mind towards the second factor of the seven factors of enlightenment, investigation of Dhammas. She is looking at a very mundane uh, happening in the light of Anicca, in the light of impermanence. Right. And she's probably done that thousands of times before, mm-hmm. directed her mind towards impermanence when seeing something very ordinary. Like I've been telling uh, quite a number of times, watch your movements of the body and you will know each one is per- impermanent. But we take all this for granted. But this will show so clearly not only the breath and not only the heart and not only the blood and the food and the digestion and, and, um, and the self, but every movement of the body. It's impermanent. There is nothing here that has any solidity. Nothing. It's constantly moving. Always moving. And she must have done that many, many times. So when she did it one more time, it's just did it. She didn't look for Nibbana, but she certainly was using that. She looked, she was using the first and second factor of enlightenment, the mindfulness and the investigation into Dhammas, and she probably had enough energy, and she had probably done the jhanas anyway, so that was enough. I think I have already explained it, but I will uh, I'll gladly explain it again. 
having done any of the jhanas, particularly um, maybe the fourth, but uh, any of them will do, and coming out of it, the mind knows that the jhanas are still conditioned. They are conditioned by concentration. And therefore, when one comes out of them, there is again dukkha. So one wants to find that which is unconditioned, which doesn't have any conditions. And so one has two things. The first thing is, one is willing to give one's, this is a determination, an aditan. One has to give oneself up, one is willing to give oneself up completely. Because one has already understood that as long as the ego illusion exists, dukkha will exist because the ego always wants something. It's constantly wanting. Now some people's ego wants something without any interruption and they are really having a difficult life. And other people have at least a few moments of uh, rest from that during the day. But um, one has understood that so one is willing to give oneself up completely. And that's one thing. And the second thing is we want to direct the mind towards that which is unconditioned. Therefore, it doesn't have any components. It's uncompounded. It, it has not no bits and pieces. It's whole. But it also has no condition for existence. And that means we want to give ourselves up completely. So, we direct the mind. Just give it that, like a direction, as if one shooting off an arrow. Whether we're going to hit the target or not, well, that's the second thing. But first we shoot it off like we shoot off an arrow in, into, the, into that direction, which is unconditioned, there's no condition, and therefore the mind is looking for a point of complete stillness, no movement, and then let the mind go there. If it gets there, fine. If it doesn't, well, nothing lost. Try again. And the best time is after the jhanas. When the mind comes out of the jhanas, it's the best time because the mind is not uh, burdened at that time. It doesn't have any burdens. It's not thinking about this and that. It's not worrying about this and that. It's not um, trying to hang on to this or that. Unless it wants to have the pleasure of the jhanas. But most people who've been sitting here long enough know that that's also not the right thing to do. That's the time to do. It's a deliberate direction for the mind. And that's been um, explained many times like that. So uh, I thought I had already explained it, but maybe not. I'm not sure. It doesn't matter. Memories being what they are, it, it doesn't matter. Maybe I have, maybe I haven't. But anyway, that is the that is the way to go. And it's quite all right to try it after any jhana. It doesn't matter. But the determination has to be the starting point. I'm willing to give myself up completely. And you know, sometimes people think they are willing, but they find that it's like they're being attached to a rubber band. I'm quite willing, but... Hmm? Keep coming, pulling back. It's an interesting experience in any case.
anything else. 